seated. Well, we're in 1 Thessalonians again today as we continue to work our way through one of Paul's earliest letters, his first to the Thessalonian Christians. As you're turning there in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, uh, let me just get us thinking. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were maligned, mistreated, misrepresented? You know, where you faced a a nasty, flat-out smear campaign. Maybe even from a friend, a former friend. And perhaps there was no explanation for it. No reason for it. Nothing you did to precipitate any of it. And perhaps it was so obviously unprecedented and undeserved that there was no internal debate in your mind about whether to try to clear things up, about confronting. We might dare say you didn't hesitate to defend yourself with a clear conscience. Well, some here today may thank God that they've never gone through something like that, and others here today know it all too well and have some very specific memories in mind as I say those words. But then let's explore another scenario. Have you ever been in a disagreement with someone? Perhaps they approached you, they said, trying to lovingly show you some way in which you've hurt them, or some way in which you have begun to walk astray from the Lord. But you don't see it. You don't agree, and you resist, and resist, and resist some more. But then perhaps some days go by, you're willing to pray about it at least. Perhaps you begin to allow yourself to be self-suspicious, knowing that we Christians still sinful, we don't see ourselves aright perfectly yet. And perhaps eventually you came to see that that Christian friend that approached you with concern was right. And you were wrong. And you had not just been justly defending yourself like in that first scenario, but you were just offensive. Well, in a moment of realization like that, you not only see the initial sin that your friend was trying to help you see, but you also see the ugliness of defensiveness and stubbornness. And by God's grace, you have a fresh reminder about the sneakiness of sin and the need for self-suspicion and the blessing of good friends whose wounds hurt, but they also heal. Well, distinguishing between those two scenarios isn't always easy, but it is massively important. Thinking that we're going through one of those when in fact we're going through the other, it just multiplies the pain that is inevitable already. Now, either of those scenarios, it's possible. Most of us or many of us in this room have gone through Both of those. Both are found in the Bible. According to the Bible, on the one hand, the Christian has need for self-suspicion. 
There's a time to put down our defense mechanisms to not defend ourselves. And then on the other hand, there is in the Bible a legitimate category of justly defending ourselves in the face of obvious, objective misunderstandings and misrepresentations. In our study of 1 Thessalonians, as we come to chapter 2 today, we come to a section where Paul defends himself and defends his ministry, and upon first read, it may feel like he's being defensive or even proud, self-promoting, even self-righteousness. Self-righteous. But we should give Paul the benefit of the doubt. Not only because he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he produces Holy Scripture here. Therefore, he can't be wrong or misleading us. But also because that there is that biblical category. Maybe we don't think of it too often. Maybe it doesn't sound as holy as the other. But there's that biblical category of rightly clearing up a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation that is indeed so obvious. So let's read the first 12 verses of the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, with basically every epistle or New Testament letter in the Bible, there is a kind of backstory that we can try to piece together. In the case of the Thessalonian church, we get some of the backstory from the book of Acts. We've been referring back to it in Acts chapter 17, where Paul came to the Thessalonica, preached the gospel. Some believed, some became Christians. Great opposition arose against Paul and his missionary team. 
and they were soon forced to depart the city. We get some more of the backstory from the letter itself, 1 Thessalonians. And some of that is explicit, and some of it has to be inferred. And so next week and the week after, we'll see Paul get really explicit about his concern for them while he was away. And so he, he sends Timothy as a messenger to get a report on how they're doing spiritually. And Timothy has returned. And now Paul is sending Timothy back with this letter. That's all part of the backstory from the letter itself. And it's explicit. But some of it is well, it's inferred. And we have to piece together the data cautiously. And we have to cautiously piece together what might have been going on when Paul writes these words in these first 12 verses of chapter 2. And I keep saying that word cautiously because, of course, we don't want to add to God's word. We can't add to God's word. We don't want to try to fill in gaps that aren't there. On the other hand, there was something going on. There was a reason Paul picked up pen and wrote these words down. And at times, it's right to sort of reverse engineer what he wrote to try to discover a problem that he was addressing. So it would seem that these Thessalonian Christians may have begun to doubt the apostle and his ministry. Or perhaps they had at least heard from some people some possible reasons to doubt the Apostle Paul. We can imagine the non-Christian Jews that opposed Paul so vigorously back in Acts chapter 17, both in the city of Thessalonica and then as they followed them to the city of Berea. We can imagine those non-Christian Jews would have good reason to seek to undermine the new Christian faith of these Thessalonians. And the circumstances were certainly ripe at this point for them to do so. Because again, as I said, Paul was forcibly removed from the city of Thessalonica. And months went by before they heard anything from him in Thessalonica. You can imagine, months go by and some say, Paul hasn't even risked the chance to try to get back to us. To help us? What does that mean? What does that say about him? Perhaps the seed had been planted in these Thessalonian Christians to doubt whether Paul's greatest concern was for their souls. Perhaps Paul's greatest concern was avoiding suffering, and that's why he left, and that's why he won't return. Perhaps some had heard that Paul and his missionary labors well, he was just in it for the money. He was just about himself. He was full of, you know, self-promotion. Perhaps some had spread word that Paul isn't really a legitimate apostle. I mean, he wasn't one of the 12. Perhaps some have suggested that his message, his so-called gospel, it was just man-made. Perhaps they argued it wasn't in accord with the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. And perhaps some wondered, maybe some suggested that the whole encounter with Paul 
was for naught. It would seem that something like that must have been going on for Paul to defend himself and his ministry as he did in our passage today. And if so, for him to do so wouldn't be defensive or proud or self-promoting, but instead loving and gospel-protecting. And so if you look down at verse 1 of chapter 2, he states the matter rather directly Our coming to you was not in vain. And then the verses that follow explain that or prove that. Our coming to you was not in vain. How so? How can they know? Well, there are two parts to the evidence, two M words. They should consider the message that was brought to them and the manner of care that was shown to them. Verses 1 to 6 is about the message, a message from God. The first half of our passage, a message from God. The message that Paul and Silas and Timothy brought to Thessalonica was a message from God. I mean, how do you explain their boldness with this gospel in the face of suffering? Paul's Hasty exit from Thessalonica didn't demonstrate his unwillingness to suffer. It was part of his suffering. In chapter 2, verse 17, he'll write, We were torn away from you. Torn away from you. We didn't want to leave. They were forced out. Besides, think of the circumstances that preceded their arrival into Thessalonica. As he writes here in verse 2, the Thessalonians knew that Paul and his associates had just come from Philippi where they suffered and were shamefully treated and they preached the gospel in the midst of much conflict. We referred back to this last week. It's in Acts chapter 16. In Philippi, on account of their proclamation of the gospel, And specifically on account of the conversion of a slave girl fortune teller whose conversion now meant that the money dried up for her owners or masters. Well, Paul and Silas for that were dragged before the magistrates. They were falsely accused. They were stripped naked. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into a rough, dank Roman prison And they were locked in to the stocks, it says. Feet and hands locked in place, forcing them to stand up all through the night. And so they arrived into Thessalonica, who knows exactly how long after, but perhaps with open wounds on their back from the beatings they'd received in Philippi. And did that make them... Timid about the gospel? Timid with this gospel? No. We had boldness, verse 2, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Notice it's boldness in God, not boldness in themselves, not boldness because they knew the outcome would be good, not boldness that's simply, you know, trumped up in fate. This is boldness in God. Boldness to declare the gospel of God. 
The gospel of God. Our passage doesn't define the gospel of God. It simply states it. The word gospel means good news. It's news that is announced. It only says here it's the gospel of God. It comes from God. It's his message. It's about this God and us being reconciled to him. As Luke records it in Acts 17, Paul was, he was in the synagogues every Saturday. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ or the Messiah to suffer, that's on the cross, and to rise from the dead. And specifically, it is Jesus of Nazareth who is that Christ who died and was raised. And so some believed that. Praise God. And many others violently opposed it. But in the midst of that, Paul can say we had boldness. In the midst of a new and fresh threat, we didn't hesitate to give you the gospel of God. And so if anyone would wonder whether this, this so-called apostle is he the kind of guy who when the going gets tough, he gets going somewhere else? The answer is no. And their message was a message from God because they had been entrusted with it. You see that in verse 4? Approved by God, they were entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted has the idea of stewardship behind it. Like a servant who's put in charge of a master's goods to do with those goods what the master intends for it to be done. So the gospel had been entrusted to the apostle Paul and his associates. It's God's gospel, but it's put in Paul's care and put in his charge. Paul didn't make up his message he didn't make up his conversion story. You can read about his conversion in Acts 9. Or you can hear this from Galatians 1 as he describes it. Listen to this. He said, I, I'd have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't get the gospel even from a Peter or someone like that. He got it from Jesus directly. And then he goes on from there to describe his, his former life in Judaism, how he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among these people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. There's proof. Paul didn't get his message from man. He sure wasn't making it up. It was given to him from Jesus, entrusted to him by Jesus. And that gospel was put in his charge to be sent out as the master intends. So while Paul's experience on the Damascus Road that day, while his reception of the gospel was unique, no one else really had that kind of gospel reception, yet every Christian is entrusted with this same gospel. 
I don't know who passed it on to you. I don't know exactly how you got it, but it came to you. If you believe it, you're entrusted with it. The master's put you in charge of it for it to be sent out. So be faithful with it, like Paul was here. He says in verse 4, entrusted, so we speak. What was entrusted is what is spoken. Nothing more, nothing less. He says in verse 3, our appeal doesn't spring from, from error or deception. No, he preached the true gospel, and he didn't handle it with trickery or manipulation I love how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Here's Paul's ministry methods. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He spoke according to, second, uh, to 1 Thessalonians 2, for God, to please God. He says in verse 4, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He was seeking not his own good, but the Thessalonians' good, according to verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, Or verse 6, we didn't seek glory from people, whether you or others. He sought their good. These are the marks of a faithful gospel ministry. But before we move on to the second half of our passage, let's gather up our findings thus far and seek to apply it to us today. Paul explains here not only the contours and motives for his own ministry, but he shows us an example of any good and faithful ministry. Boldness in God, with the gospel of God, even in the face of opposition, taking that gospel to the world, not to please them, not to better ourselves, but to please God. A ministry which is driven not by greed, or gain, or self-glory. And we have to acknowledge that back in Paul's day and still today, there are people out there for whom what Paul says here is not true. They can't put it in the negative. There are some who even in the name of Christ, they seem to be driven by greed and financial gain, and it's all for their own glory. And it's not just those, those pastors who have Lear jets and multiple mansions. In the last decade, it's been rather breathtaking to, to see the number of, well, famous pastors, bigwig pastors, some who are not that far from our own theological proximity, who've been removed from their office, either due to greed or self-promotion, being obsessed with a a spotlight, a platform, 
some for being manipulative or power-hungry or angry and abusive. And of course, the, the most common, it seems, adultery. And so may we, may we all beware. May we, Desert Springs Church, may our leadership take heed lest we fall. May we continue to hold ourselves individually and as a church to this kind of simple gospel ministry pattern that we find in Paul's example here. And may we stick to the same gospel. May we never turn to a different gospel. There are different gospels out there which are no gospels at all. They're not good news. But they're sold as good news. There's the gospel of, yes, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There's the gospel of self-esteem. There's the so-called gospel of tolerance and acceptance. There's the gospel of Green initiatives, I suppose. There is a a so-called gospel that's far too chummy with American politics. Whether that's the version of owning the libs or the version of hating Trump. There is also the kind of gospel that really has nothing to say. It's only about faithful presence and not faithful proclamation. Paul had boldness, conviction, courage, a willingness to lose something in order that others might hear the thing they need to hear for their salvation. And they may not like it. Perhaps they may not like it at first. Perhaps they will never like it. Perhaps we will be shamed. Perhaps we will lose a friend. Perhaps it may cost you your business in the end. But let's lean in towards boldness. And may God give us the right mixture of sincerity and boldness, gentleness and clarity, because we need it. Now, if you're not a Christian... You're here with us this morning. We're so glad you're here. And I'm just going to do what I'm talking about right now with you. I'm just going to tell you the gospel. As I said, it's here by way of word, gospel, I think four or five times in our passage, but it's, it's never defined. The good news is that though we are born sinners, rejecting God and going away from him, even if religiously so, Jesus, God, took on flesh. He lived a righteous life. He died on the cross as a sacrifice or a payment for our sins. And he was raised on the third day. Thereby, God testified to us that what happened on that cross was done. He's victorious. He conquered sin and death and the devil. And that good news is announced Far and wide, it's announced here this morning. Perhaps you've heard it before, perhaps this is the first time. But this is what Christians do. We announce that good news because we have believed that good news. And so we invite you to believe it with us. 
That's all you have to do to become a Christian is to embrace this, to believe it, to trust in it, to ask God for it. You can't earn it. In fact, you try to earn it, 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 it doesn't come your way. It won't work. But if you lean into this, like, like it's been said, that faith is like, a, it's like sitting on a chair. You just you sit down. That's trust. That's faith. That's what we do on Jesus. We, we stand on him, as we talked about earlier, a rock. I pray you do that today. That's a message from God. Not me, not Paul, not some old archaic book that has some weird ideas. This is a message from God. Secondly, we see a manner of care in verses 7 to 12. If you notice, verses 1 through 6, the things are stated in the negative. We did not, it was not, we never, nor did we. Now, verses 7 to 11, things are stated positively. You know how we did this or that. In fact, whether it's stated negatively or positively, notice the, the similar phrases throughout, I think six times total. You yourselves know, verse 1, as you know, verse 2, you know, verse 5, you remember, verse 9, you are witnesses, verse 10, so is God, you know, verse 11. He's reminding them of what they have heard, what they have seen. And here in the second half is he reminds them of the manner of care that Paul and his associates showed these Thessalonian Christians. Here he uses two metaphors, two metaphors. He says in verse 7, we were like a nursing mother. Verse 11, he says, we were like a father with his children. Let's take each of those one at a time. Verses 7 to 8, listen to this. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. What a beautiful picture. It's multi-layered. Some things are implied, some things are explicitly stated but think of what it means for Paul and his men to be like a nursing mother with her children. It implies feeding, right? The, the Bible likens the word of God to milk. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes desire the sincere milk, so you should long for the milk of the word if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good. So Paul was, he was a feeder, you could say, for these new Christians. He was feeding them the word, feeding them the word until he was forced out of Thessalonica. I think implied in a nursing mother is sacrifice. When I think of nursing moms, I think middle of the night, I, I couldn't get up and do it. <laughs> when we had kids that needed to be fed in the middle of the night, that's a one-person job. At least it was in my family. Uh, but I knew it was happening. I was aware of it. I was, before falling back asleep, I was thanking God again for my wife caring for our little one once again. 
great sacrifice. And then explicitly, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. Gentle. Or, Or taking care of, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Or verse 8, we were affectionate for you, affectionately desirous of you. You had become very dear to us. And also in verse 8, we not only shared the gospel with you, but we shared our own selves with you. Literally, our own souls with you. And you see how all this supports and confirms and even sort of complements what Paul has described about his ministry of the word in the earlier verses. We weren't greedy, we were bold, we gave you the gospel, we weren't seeking our own glory. We were like a nursing mom, we cared for you. We weren't about promoting self, we weren't in it for ourselves, we couldn't help ourselves but care for you. We we committed our souls to you. A nursing mom. Could, could there be any other word picture that is more intimate and caring and sacrificial and, and warm? G.K. Beale, he writes of it like this. A nursing mom takes the initiative to pattern her life around the life of the newborn in order to properly meet the child's needs. Ultimately, she sacrifices her needs to meet the needs of her offspring. She is delighted to give her life to her children because she loves them. That's how Paul and Silas and Timothy were with these newborn Christians. And as a pastor, I find these words both convicting and sweetly encouraging. Like the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So I say to you, Desert Springs, I I am affectionate for you. Oh, Lord, help me to be more affectionate for you. I indeed care for the saints of Desert Springs Church. Lord, help me to care for the saints of Desert Springs Church more and better. With a very clear conscience, the Kellys can say, you have become very dear to us since we arrived 17 years ago. And with an even clearer conscience, I can commend to you the ministry and care of my shepherding colleagues, the other elders, the other staff, our deacons, and even our community group leaders. You have become very dear to them. They are affectionately desirous for you. They are like nursing mothers, sacrificing time and energy and care because how could they do otherwise? Praise God for them. And then there's this analogy 
of the Father, verses 9 to 12. It's not until verse 11 that he mentions, like a father with his children. But if you notice, if you look down in your Bibles, there's a four at the beginning of verse 11 connecting it to what came before. And so I believe he's essentially unpacking the father metaphor starting in verse 9, and then that carries through to verse 12. Here's how Paul and his co-workers were like a father Well, consider their hard work, verse 9. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil? We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we were proclaiming to you the gospel of God. That's not to say at all that moms don't work hard day and night. Indeed, we know they tend to work harder. But here, Paul is thinking of labor and toil, and he's tying it to this simple thing that he and his men supported themselves while they were in Thessalonica rather than receiving support from them. We know from Acts 18, verse 3, that Paul was a tent maker by trade, and at times he used that trade to support himself while on his missionary endeavors. And it's important to note what I said there, that at times or in ways, Paul supported himself in his ministry endeavors. Because in Philippians 4, you can read it later on your own, verses 15 to 18, he thanked the Philippians there for their financial support, which was actually reaching him while he was in Thessalonica. So his financial means in the days of Thessalonica were, yes, one, tent-making apparently, but, but also financial support from the Philippian church who had just been blessed by his ministry among them. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul can, he can spend about a dozen verses or so, you can go find it on your own, explaining the, the good and right practice of financially supporting gospel ministers. He uses the Old Testament law, do not muzzle the ox. You see, when an ox is plowing, you let the ox eat as it plows. And Paul applies that to gospel ministers and then concludes in verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's what he was talking about in 1 Timothy 5 when he talked about a church giving double honor to the elders who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now you might wonder, why go down that rabbit trail, Ryan, when that's not actually in our passage? Paul says he did the opposite of that. Yeah, but it is in our passage back in verse 6, I believe. We could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying there, we we could have asked for financial support as we labored in the word and in shepherding care of you while we were there. Of course, no missionary, no good missionary, no good pastor, no good evangelist, you know, sends people the bill. That's not what he's talking about. But, But generally, it is customary for at least some of the elders in a local church, to be freed up from outside work to focus on full-time ministry. But 
With that said, Paul didn't do that in Thessalonica. He wanted to signal to these not yet Christians as he brought the free gospel to them that that there's no trade here. It's no transaction, no payment needed. This is a come kind of gospel. Come and take. He wanted to signal to them, especially in their newborn Christian state, that that he was the the spiritual parent. He cared for them. He paid the bill. He wasn't going to let them be burdened at all with his presence there. And so that meant labor and toil, working night and day while proclaiming the gospel of God. And in that regard, Paul reminds me of our elders who are not staff elders. They're not compensated by the church. They spend, my estimate is, over 20 hours a month doing that thing of not just being a good church member, but shepherding, meeting, praying, caring, teaching, studying. In that regard, they are more like the Apostle Paul as he was in Thessalonica than I am, and they are to be commended for their hard work among us. Consider their holy lives, Paul says in verse 10. You are witnesses. God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. And here is where it might sound the most, I don't know, self-promoting, proud, or at least untrue. But blameless here doesn't mean perfection. It means life with integrity. It means a life that's out in the open, exemplary. They weren't duplicitous. There were no skeletons in the closet. Paul wasn't claiming perfection in his holiness and righteousness. No, it was holiness and righteousness as the undeniable direction and desire for his life, and it was observable, it was noticeable. They, they, they had seen it. They knew that there were things Paul wasn't going to do, and there were things that Paul wanted to do for the purpose of glorifying God and representing him well. And all this, too, is part of that evidence that, back to verse 1, their coming to Thessalonica was not in vain. Despite what some may have heard, despite what some may be tempted to believe, Paul and his men proclaimed the gospel in boldness in the face of suffering. They demonstrated their care for the Thessalonians in these motherly and fatherly ways. And they were exemplary in their desire to live for God. Not perfectly, but genuinely, sincerely, noticeably. And they taught these Thessalonian Christians to do the same. So verse 11, like a father with his children, now verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And like that word blameless doesn't mean sinless. So that phrase, walking in a manner worthy of God, Well, that sounds too lofty, doesn't it? It sounds like it's impossible. But it isn't some sort of repayment for grace. Much less is it uh, putting some sort of price tag on God's worth. 
that's reckoned according to our efforts or success. No, walk in a manner worthy of God, read on, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That's grace. That's, that's hope. He's called you in. One day he will call you into the kingdom in all its fullness and glory. So now live lives that reflect that. Walk in a manner worthy of this kind of God who calls you into his kingdom so freely, so according to his grace and not your efforts. But he calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Represent it, live like it, reflect it. This is what Paul encouraged, exhorted, charged them with. Every one of them. Those three words are close to synonyms, but each has their own nuance. He exhorted them. He told them what to do and pleaded with them to do it. He encouraged them, which probably has a softer connotation than exhorting. Come on, you can do this. Think of a, a warm-hearted coach. Think of a, a good dad cheering on his son. Oh, but he charged them. He charged them. This is a charge before God. As Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and his angels to preach the word in season and out of season. So Paul uses that language here for just plain old everyday obedience. I charge you, walk in this way reflect the one who has called you into his kingdom and glory i'm sure many of us today need a, a fresh exhortation or a fresh encouragement or even a fresh charge to walk in a way that befits the god who calls us into his kingdom and glory. The God who will one day return and bring us into that final kingdom and glory. And hear that exhortation, that encouragement, or that charge afresh today. And may we as a church, may we encourage each other in these ways. This mother-father thing, it's not just for apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's for each one of us. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. Let's care for each other in radical ways, in ways that, that befits these familial metaphors, father, mother, brother, sister. Let us together stick to the gospel. It's a message from God. May we speak of that gospel because it's a message from God. May we encourage each other in light of this gospel. Nonstop, just keep going. Encourage each other. Exhort, encourage, if necessary, charge. This is the manner of care that we're to have with each other. Let's pray. 
Oh Lord, again, we thank you for your word and its riches. Here, bit by bit, phrase by phrase, even word at a time, the Apostle Paul unpacks the gospel and gospel ministry, gospel motives, and gospel care. Lord, help us to believe this. Help us to live in light of this. May we encourage each other day by day while it's still the day until that day comes when you bring us to glory. We thank you, Lord, for that hope. Help us now to sing in light of it as we live here awaiting your return. May we encourage each other. In Christ's name, amen.